Well, open your Bibles to Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This reminds me of the joke that you've probably heard before about the deacons that thought the pastor only had one sermon because he preached the same one every single Sunday and he told them, well, when you obey that one, then I'll give you another one. So I have been feeling that as I've gone through Colossians 3 myself, but I've found the repetition has been extremely helpful uh, for my own heart. Uh, stuck in there. And I found myself even praying through the passage to, to obey it on a regular basis. And we've come to the final verse. Uh, so we will not be in Colossians uh, next week. We'll be heading back, Lord willing, to Romans chapter 6 at the beginning of our um, mirrored services. So that means I have one Sunday next week to preach whatever I want to preach. And I don't know what it will be, but... Uh, the Lord does. We migrated here, though, from Romans 6, which told us about our union with Christ and being in Him. You're not to yield your members to sin, but you're to yield yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And Colossians 3 is actually showing us how to, how to do that through the process of biblical replacement or putting off and, and putting on. We are to put off the life and the things that came out of our hearts that marked us. We're to put off the things that we were before we came to Christ, and we're to put on new ways, which Colossians 2, 12-14 is outlining for us. And the last time, we, we saw this selfless practice we're to pursue in relationships with, with, with others. Uh, and today, we're, we're going to see the final addition, which is love, reigning over, over all of these, these graces. We're, we're calling it uh, four seams in a believer's Christ-like garment. There is our special position, verse 12, uh, in this command to adorn yourself with a specific pattern. Those are the five virtues. And then a call to follow a selfless practice that we saw last week. And then today, we're to practice a perfecting bond. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 12. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And so the first seam just by way of re reminder, is, is our special position. We're chosen, God's elect people. We're holy, which means you're set apart for Him, and we're beloved. The reason that we're both of those things, chosen and holy, is because we're beloved by, by God. And Paul starts with the motivation. That motivates us to pursue the graces that mark our Lord, which was the second command here. You, you're to adorn yourself with this specific pattern. Verse 12 again. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and, and faithfulness. We're to, we're to put on these virtues like a fresh, clean shirt after we lay aside the dirty garment that marked us from before. And there are five of them. We, we went over them. A heart of compassion that is a compulsion to be, to be moved to action by the need of, uh, of another. Kindness, which is just a a generous spirit that oozes pleasantness, humility, a proper estimation of oneself in light of God, a gentleness which is self-control and, and being measured, and then patience, being long-suffering with others. So we're to adorn those selves with these Christ-like attributes. And then last week, this third scene was a call to follow selfless practice. Look at verse 13. It says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So added to these virtues, Christians are to show tolerance toward partialities and we're to extend grace toward offenses. So one deals with our preferences and the other one deals with our sin. So verse 13 turns our focus toward the body of Christ, where where you can see that very clearly by this this, this term, one another or each other. So as those five virtues before, the the compassion and the kindness and the the humility, you're you're putting those on as an individual. So verse 13 now turns the conversation toward the the relationships that that are operating in, in the church. And you're to practice these habitual behaviors toward other Christians in your, in your church family, where we're not to be thin-skinned people, we're not to be people who hold grudges, but we are to forbear and we are to forgive. We are to endure or bear with the differences of others, the things that you, you may not care for about your, your fellow brothers and sisters, or the things that, that you, you prefer that, that might be different from, from them. We're not to tolerate heresy, or theological error, or evil, or intentional sin. This doesn't mean be wishy-washy. In fact, we're called to be very narrow-minded about the gospel. Jesus was. There is but one way to heaven. He is the only way. Christians are not to play fast and loose with the truth or accept error. But we are to be tolerant with the failures of others, the weaknesses of others, the immaturity and the different stages of sanctification of others, and the consciences of of others. The tolerance that God is commanding here is is related to preferences and personal judgments and personal irritations and secondary theological matters. The things that would fall into Romans 14 would, would be that first bullet. Matters of the conscience. Paul says the balm that soothes those differences is tolerance. Forbearance is also needed for personal irritations, rising from annoying differences. Sometimes we just get on each other's nerves. And unhelpful criticism, whether it's spoken or thought in your heart, is the sin that comes out of that that irritation. I mean, I hope you understand that God actually puts people in your life to rub you the wrong way, to give you the opportunity to glorify Him by tolerating them which also means you are the person that God has put in someone else's life to give them the same privilege. And finally, Christian forbearance is needed, which is this issue with theological observations, things like eschatology, common passages that produce historical differences, methodology, again, you better have a position on all of those. You should, we do. But these are not areas that fall into the category of heresy. So we're to be tolerant toward those things. They're believers. They may be wrong, but they're believers. We're also to be gracious toward sin. We don't tolerate someone else's sin toward us. We show grace by forgiving it, which is that second word. We're we're to throw a wet blanket of love. We're to let love cover a multitude of of sins. Uh, That The burning offense that's there or we're to love them by, by showing them how they've sinned and they're, that they're no longer aligned with Christ, which is Matthew 18. And Paul reminds us then the motivation for doing that is our forgiveness from God. We are to be gracious 
as the Lord has shown grace to, to, to you. That's verse 13. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. God freely forgave you, and so we should freely forgive one another. And going through this list, I'm sure you can see how vital both of those things are in the life of the, the church. And maybe you've experienced church life where, where those two things haven't operated and the sparks that, that, that fly. But what gives you the ability to put on these, these virtues individually or practice tolerance and forbearance is, is this last word. What gives you the ability to do all of these things is, is love. Here's the fourth scene. It's a perfecting bond. In our last verse, verse 14, it says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of, of unity. Paul says, beyond all these things, clothe yourselves with, with love. The verb is supplied from verse 12, so it's a, a putting on. It's the same idea, putting on a garment. So beyond all of these things, these clothes that you have already put on. I don't know if you've, you've seen some of these people trying to be funny uh, to escape a checked bag fee. Uh, so they, they go through security with like 30 layers of clothes on. You might think of this idea. You put on love over all of these other things. Beyond a heart of compassion, beyond kindness, beyond lowliness, beyond gentleness and patience and tolerance and differences and graciousness towards sin. Put on love like, a, like an overcoat that envelops everything else. Wear it like a football jersey that, that holds your pads in place. Drape it like a bungee net in the bed of your truck that holds the, the boxes in, in your bed on the way to the dump so they don't fly out. Love is a coalescing grace that, that, that couples everything else together in, in this list. P.T. O'Brien said, love is the unifying force linking the other virtues. Scott McKnight said, it's the superglue of the virtues. And that's the idea from this added description, which is the perfect bond of, of unity. You're told to put it on. You're told to put it on over all of these other things, and then there's a description. It's the perfect bond of unity, which further explains what love does. It, it, in relation to all of the other graces, it binds them. There are numerous interpretations, but I think the best way to take this is love brings harmony to all of these other virtues. It unifies them bringing our practice of them to completion. It, it allows us to exercise all of them together. It, it permits all of them to be in our lives at once. I mean, how do you have compassion and kindness and tolerance and forgiveness and everything there all at the same time as a Christian? Well, well love allows that. Love permits that. Love undergirds that. The, the word for bond was used of the sinews of the body, and it means to link. So it, it unites and binds. And, and Paul says all of these other virtues pursued without love are impossible to practice together. You, you'll be inconsistent in your exercise of them. You may put on one but not be able to do the other. You, 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 you may be compassionate, but, but then you're not tolerant. Or you'll be unbalanced in your expression. One will, will, will come out greater than, than the other. Or one will be left out. You'll... You only be able to do them on and off, not all the time, not consistent. You'll leave some of them out, which, 
which is exactly what Paul says about love. Love is this coalescing grace. Love is preeminent. Love is primary, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul goes into great detail about in 1 Corinthians 13. So I want you to turn over there. 1 Corinthians 13. We've covered this angle of love in Galatians on on Sunday night. Galatians 5.14 said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We talked even last Sunday night how Romans 13.9 actually explains why love does that. Why does love fulfill the law? Well, why can, can Paul say loving your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the, of the law? Everything spoken of by, by Moses. Romans 13 actually explains why. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. That's the second half of the Decalogue. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the, of the law. So Paul can make that statement but because love does no wrong to, to a neighbor. So when love is operating in you, what comes out of you is always good toward, toward others, toward, toward your neighbor, and therefore the law is fulfilled as love is, is, is operating. But here in Colossians, Paul commands us to put on love. So how do you do that? How do you put on love like, a, like an overcoat? Okay, I, I want to do that, Pastor. I, I want to put on, put on love, but, but how? Do I just feel gushy toward everybody? I mean, what, what does this look like? I mean, we talk a lot about love. But love. God is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart. We love God because He first, first loved us. And, and it can be hard to nail down a succinct definition of love because it's expressed and described and talked about in so many different ways. I read one writer that summarized all the different examples of love from Scripture. He said there's God's love, there's man's love for God, there's man's love for mankind, there's our love for things, there's God's love for His Son, there's God's love for men. And the definition, I think, that spans all of those is, is this. There are three common characteristics. Divine love and love that we're to imitate has three common characteristics. It's characterized by sacrifice in the pursuit of another person's good, not based on the loveliness of the object, but rather the goodwill of the, the lover. If you summarize everything, I think you see, you cook it down, love sacrificial, it's for another person's good, and it's not because of their worthiness, which is exactly the way you see God dealing with, with us. And that love has been placed in our hearts, the desire to do these things, have been, and the ability to do these things have been placed in our, it's been placed in our hearts. But, but this is a command in Colossians, to put it on. It's not to have love, it's to practice love. It means we're to employ the love that God has implanted in us, this kind of love. But Colossians focuses on the doing aspect of that, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 details for us. 
I mean, if you're to put on love above everything else, how do you know if you are? I mean, is, is there something that, that shows us? And, and it's illustrated both in principle and practice right here through three paragraphs in 1 Corinthians 13. You probably know it as the love chapter because it's all about love, the whole thing. And Paul says here in this, in this chapter, it's through this love that we're to put on, he gives three descriptions of it. He says love is primary, love is practiced, and love is, is permanent. It's primary above gifts. It's necessary in operating them. And love is permanent. The first thing that he says here is, Love is primary. It's essential and necessary in your, in your Christian life. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Here's the first paragraph, the first three verses. And, and you've read this chapter before. You see clearly how it breaks down, but I'll break it down for you. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, If you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, if I do, I have become a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In these first three verses, Paul summarizes the, the substance of a Christian's life without love. He says love is primary. And if you lack it, you're noisy, you're nothing, and you get no credit with God. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? You don't ever want to be any of those three things. You don't want to be noisy, you don't want to be nothing, and you surely want credit from God for, for what you do. If love is not the base of operations, you cannot be pleasing to God, and there's no reward in eternity. You know the, pas the passage that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God? Well, add this one to the list. Without love, you get no credit. It's a pretty serious beginning to whatever he's going to say here about practicing love. Look, look at verse 1. He says, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I mean, he starts with a with the hypothetical. He's not saying he has angelic language. He's using this, this, this far-reaching hypothetical, uh, tongues of men and of angels, to reinforce his argument. He says, if I have the natural and the supernatural, but do not have love, I, I have become like an instrument that serves no purpose. I'm, I'm just a noisemaker. And those party favors may be fun the first time you blow them, but when somebody else blows it over and over and over like a little six-year-old or a five-year-old, boy, it gets annoying, doesn't it? Which is exactly what the Corinthians were doing with their abuse of tongues. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, watch, he moves from tongues to, to prophecy and mystery and all knowledge. If I, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. He climbs the ladder here even higher to make his point. And the reference to tongues, which is the least of the gifts, according to chapter 12, verse 28. He now moves to prophecy and knowledge and, and, and faith. These are all miraculous gifts related to revelation. And they're considered significant, the pinnacle of the gifts at, at this point in time in, in the apostolic tradition. But, but Paul says he would be of no value. He, he would be nothing if he didn't possess love. 
One commentator pointed out that, that this is worse than his first example because at least in his first example he'd be noisy. Here he's nothing. But here he says he has no profit whatsoever, even if he performs the greatest sacrificial acts that you can think of and is loveless. Look at verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed, uh, to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He, he chooses now extreme acts of sacrifice in possessions and martyrdom to give all your goods away, even give your body to be burned in fire like Daniel and, and his friends. He says those acts do not profit without love. Middle tense, I'm not profited by it, assumedly before God. That doesn't make you evaluate everything we do in light of love, no matter how successful you think it is. If love is not operating in the background, the sweetness of love, the other's mindedness of, of, of love, you didn't accomplish anything. But what does love look like? Is that, it's that important. It's primary. But what does it look like? Well, love is actually practiced. So here's the second thing that Paul does. He describes love in practice. So here's the second paragraph, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's probably the part of the passage that you already know. You may even know it by heart. You may know it by heart. You may know this passage not because we're good at doing these things, but because we hear it a lot at weddings, which I don't think we did yesterday. The first three verses that we just went over, verses 1 through 3, shows that God cares much more about you practicing things than memorizing them and practicing them with, with love. It's a good start to memorize it, but that's like sitting on your motorcycle in the garage calling it riding, if you, you know it, but you don't do it. Putting on your running shoes and calling it a 5K. Man, that was tough this morning. I mean, it's great that you got dressed, but you actually have to run to get credit for the... For the 5K. And notice Paul describes love here in verses 4 through 7 in very concrete ways. These are all examples of how love is expressed. Love is not some abstract idea to Paul. It's in tangible terms from one human being to another. That list of there's love from God, this, this is all describing love from one human being to another human being. How does love operate between, between people? It's, it's tangible between, between people. In fact, this context for the list, if you ever wonder why just plop the love chapter in Romans, or I mean in 1 Corinthians, why, why is this here? Well, it's here because of the Corinthian church. The context tells us why it's here. The church is, is full of me monsters. Everybody's concerned about themselves. I mean, they're so self-oriented. Think back through the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, what, what you, are already, you already know up, up to this point. They're dividing up over preaching personalities in chapters 1 and 2. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I mean, this was the 1 Corinthians Wrestling Federation, and they wanted apostolic cage matches. They're placing bets in the church. 
They're not dealing with sin in the body. 1 Corinthians 5, there's this illicit relationship in the church, which is a very unloving thing to do, to, to allow that to, to remain. It's always loving to confront sin. They're taking each other to law court over trivial and petty things in 1 Corinthians 6, demanding their rights. They were withholding themselves from one another in marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 and also divorcing rather than keeping their covenant. And, and they were coming to the Lord's table in, in chapter 11, getting drunk when, when they did, the dividing up of the rich and the poor and not discerning the body of Christ. Some of them were, were even disciplined by the Lord because of that. And they're having spiritual gift battles in chapter 12 and chapter 14, interrupting one another, showing off their so-called spiritual talents. And Paul puts this chapter right here to define for the Corinthians the way that they should be acting as Christians toward each other. I mean, you might even think of this list as, as antibiotics for the loveless disease in the Corinthian church and possibly even in your own heart. It's a very straightforward list. They're, there's actually 15 verbs here. And the first two set the overall idea, and the next eight describe what love does and what it does not do. And then the final four, that rapid fire about all things, just kind of summarizes it. And then he ends with this statement, love never fails. Love remains. It, love never ceases. And then he'll talk about that in the final paragraph. Now, I'm not going to go through this list and blow out each of the, the terms. I will describe them. But I just want to show you how, how Paul, he's describing love in practice here, and there's a method to his madness. You might just see this as a bunch of, bunch of terms. Love is this, love is this. He, he actually has, has a purpose to describe love in practice. Look at you at verse 4. He says, love is patient, love is kind. That's how he starts. This is the overall idea of love in practice. It it holds back and it gives. So, so this is the, like, like, the, like, like the, the, the launching salvo. And then he's going to describe love even beyond that. But, it, but if he doesn't complete anything else in the list, these two give us an idea of what love looks like in, in practice. It holds back and it gives. When it's operating, it's passive and it's active in response toward others. When love is operating toward another human being, you hold back what they deserve, what you want to give them, and you, and you give them what they don't deserve. That's love in action. And that imitates God's love, doesn't it? Because the Bible's full of all kinds of things that God does for us, and it's common grace, and it's specific grace, and otherwise. But if you just want to cook it down, God is long-suffering in patience, holding back His wrath, and His kindness... He's kind in the expression of his mercy, holding out the gospel, right? God doesn't bring his immediate wrath, and God offers the gospel to the whole world. And these words imitate that love. So you imitate that. That's the big picture. Now, here's a series of descriptions of what love does and what it does not do when it's practiced between human beings. As it's holding back and as it's giving, more defined, what... what it, when it's holding back and, and, and when it's giving, it's, it's not jealous or boastful. There's no rivalry with love. A loving person doesn't see a fellow believer as a, as a competition. It asks, how may I serve that person? And it doesn't boast. One commentator said, you're not a windbag if you have love. 
You're not the hero of your own stories. You don't look for the praise of men. You, don't, you actually look to prop other people up rather than, than, than you. What else it says? It's not arrogant, meaning proud or, or, or rude. He's coupling these things together, describing the holding back and, and the giving. More detail. You don't see yourself in, in any way other than God does. You're, you're not arrogant. Jerry Falwell Sr. said years ago, if everyone knew you like God did, there wouldn't be any bragging going on. It's true. It doesn't act unbecomingly in verse 5. It's not rude. It's not unseemly. It doesn't behave shamefully or disgracefully. It doesn't do anything intentionally provocative. It doesn't put a stick in somebody else's eye. You, you, you don't put a dig in there. Love doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It's not self-seeking. It's not enamored with self, self-gain, self-worth, self-anything. Love focuses on others. And it's not provoked by others. It's not easily angered. I think this one, the person who loves is not easily triggered, to use our common vernacular. Our world could use a dose of love, couldn't it? You just have to breathe wrong. You insult someone. So don't act like them whenever you become overly offended whenever they reject your Christianity. That's what they're going to do. And you're loving whenever you're, you don't just pop off whenever that happens. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not devise evil against someone else. It doesn't ponder how to pay someone back. Look at verse 6. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not celebrate evil or bad things. It focuses on what's true. It doesn't get excited when bad things happen to those that you don't like. And you don't dream about how you would, you would feel if they're, if they're harmed. What is true is they're a child of God, even if bad. And they're not as bad as you think them to be. And then in verse 7, so holding back and giving is what it is, what it's not, when it's practiced. And then this kind of capstone, four statements. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things about others and, and life. All things. Rapid-fire verbs summarizes the list. It means universal. When you're practicing love toward one another, you, you bear, you cover things, you believe the best, you, you hope for even better, and you endure until God brings it. That's what it means. Notice, though, sandwiched between this, this covering of things and enduring is faith and hope. Believing the best and hoping, waiting in God for, for even better. Which is going to set up this last paragraph. You pursue love because it's permanent. You do all of these things because it's permanent. It's the greatest of three, uh, three Christian qualities that operate right now until heaven. And here's the, the final paragraph with this, this last verb launching it in verse 8. We would at verse 8. Love never fails. So that's the last of the 15. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there's knowledge, it will be done away with. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, I think like a child, reason like a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am known. And watch how he's going back and forth in these time elements. Now then, now then. But then I will know just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is is love. So he starts his thought in verse 8. Love never fails. And then he goes on this rabbit trail in support of, of, of his point, verses 9 through 12, with all of this stuff about knowing in part and, the, and tongues and prophecies. And, and then he comes back, returns to his point in verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is, is love. So there's the final description, the rabbit trail, and then his, his end point. The two key words here is the beginning of verse 13. Notice verse 13. But now, now in this age, now before the coming of Christ, right now. And in his jaunt through the briar patch, Paul is correcting the Corinthians who were wrongly focused. They were seeking spiritual gifts for self-exaltation. And Paul says it's not even logical because they're going to pass away. Remember how chapter 12 ends and he sets up chapter 13. Look at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, but I show you still a more excellent way. And here he's showing why love is the more excellent way. It's permanent. You're focused on things that are passing away. Not unimportant, but they're passing away. That's what he's saying. So so he rebukes them for practicing gifts and not having love. He he then defines what love looks like. And now he comes back and puts the icing on the cake of his argument. Love is a must because love remains. It, It abides. You listening? Love is eternal. That's what he's saying here. Spiritual gifts are important, but they'll cease some sooner than others. Look at verse 8. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away with. I mean, why does he single out these specific gifts? Well, for one, these are the gifts that the Corinthians are abusing. They were having cackle contests in the church. They're not even practicing biblical tongues, They're, which is the ability to share the gospel in a, in a foreign language that you don't possess. That's what 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, in the next chapter, he'll, he'll go into detail about, about what they're doing. I mean, what's the outcome, brethren, when you do that? When you assemble and one has a psalm, one has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. It serves no purpose to do that. And they were sounding off in some ecstatic babble, very similar to what you see on TV and the wood, hay, and stubble channels. and They're doing it all at once in the church. And they're trying to outshine each other. And they were all prophesying in the assembly, trying to one-up each other. I've got a better one than you do. It's like the preaching contest that they did whenever I was in seminary to see who was the best. Paul says, stop it. 
It's not edifying. It's not loving. It's not even scriptural. But he also singled out these gifts because these specific gifts are the first to go. Look at verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Again, he's talking about two periods here. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully just as I've also been known. Now there's all kinds of angles on what does Paul mean by when the perfect comes? Is that the Bible? Is that the second coming of Christ? Is that eternal things? Whatever it is, Paul is very plain that there's a time when these specific gifts will be done away with. Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. It's also clear that these spiritual gifts are partial, meaning incomplete. They're not the main thing. They're limited by our earthly existence. They're provided for a limited purpose. Now, that's true. There no, there, there's no text that draws a hard line between the, when these initial authenticating gifts, which the Corinthians were enamored with, there's no hard line in, in Scripture where it says, okay, these stop, and now tomorrow these, these continue. But what's plain by this passage is it does happen. And when you look at the New Testament, adding to that New Testament experience, the line is like the entire book of Acts. You see them operating very clearly, very strongly in the beginning, and then you see them trailing off as, as structure and the church is built, and, and elders are brought into play, deacons first, and then, and then elders, and the, the, then revelation is coming. There, there's not a clear line where, okay, tongues ends today, and the, the gifts that remain are, are now for tomorrow, but you see them trailing off. And then at some point, they, they cease. There's no mention of these things in, in church history. There's a time when the things are, are not the way that, that they will be whenever they reach their, their end goal. A time when we're not completely like a child versus an adult, when we're dim versus we're, we're known. Carl Barth said it's because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. Verse 13 says that you're in this period now. And there's something way more important even now than gifts. Something else entirely. Look at verse 13. But now, right now, before eternal things, before Christ returns. But now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The gifts cease, the three remain, faith, hope, and love. Remain when? Remain where? Since we're using time reference, we'll say when. And the answer is why love is singled out as the greatest. And Paul already told us at the end of verse 8, or beginning of verse 8, love, love remains. It, it never ceases. It never fails. So it's the greatest of these. It remains because it's eternal. It, it, it spans both worlds. The right now, when it's dim, when it's, when it's partial, when it's incomplete, and whenever you see, when the sun does rise, when, when Christ is seated on the throne. I mean, when heaven comes, faith will, will be sight. The part of faith 
there'll be a part of faith that won't be needed. I mean, you'll still believe the Lord in, in heaven, but, but the way we would describe faith, uh, uh, right now we walk by faith and not by sight, and one day sight will be a reality. We'll see the Lord, and we'll no longer need this kind of faith. So gifts will cease, but, but, but there's even an aspect of faith that, that won't remain in heaven. What a day when we'll see all of God's promises realized when we, we look upon the one who, who saved us, worshiping in his presence for, for all eternity. And not only that, in, in heaven, hope is realized, isn't it? Because hope is, a, is the promise of what will be. There will be hope in heaven in the sense that you have perfect assurance of eternity continuing and everything sustaining. But, but the hope that, that Paul talks about, hope is the fuel that life runs on. It's the assurance that the promises of God will be fulfilled. When a Christian uses the term hope, it's, it, it's not what we sure wish that would come true. It's, it's, we mean it, it's as sure as we're sitting here right now. It just hasn't happened yet. And, and Paul says there's a time when, when, the, when it will happen. It's a timing thing. It's a trust thing. We're assured, but when we reach heaven... Earthly hope will be realized. That'll, that'll be over. And so that hope is no longer needed when the promise is realized. But, but Paul says love remains. And love, love is undiminished. So it's greater. It's permanent. Love transcends earth and heaven. It spans both time periods. It spans both worlds. It's, it's what we have from God right now and what we'll carry into eternity. And... There, it will not diminish in any way. In fact, there it will go stronger and, and stronger as eternity moves along. As the Catechism says, in heaven we will, we will love God and we will enjoy Him forever. So Paul says when you practice this tangible, these tangible expressions of love, when, when you hold back and, and whenever you give, and when you practice that holding back and giving in these specific ways bearing and, and even practicing faith and, and hope in all things and, and enduring until this moment comes, which Paul says is, is going to come. When you're doing that, you're operating on heaven's currency. 110, 220, love in heaven. And you get to practice them right now. You get to practice that right now toward others. You get to do something eternal and supernatural which is why it's the overarching virtue in Colossians 3, beyond all these things. Of course, what you kill and what you put off, but beyond all these things that you put on, you put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It electrifies all of those other virtues. It's the glue that holds all of those other virtues together, the divine electricity that empowers them. It's the bond that, that brings reward. And without love, you'll be a noisy instrument. And you'll not amount to anything for the kingdom and you'll have no reward. So we pray that God would increase our, our love. But if you listen to that and it's just words like the old cartoons of Charlie Brown when they're on the telephone, wah, wah, wah. You need to hear about the love of God that's being extended to you that I mentioned before. Because there is eternal wrath that's being stored up 
against your iniquities, against your sin, your falling short, against your, your transgressions, the re- rebellion in your heart, the falling short, and the, the stepping over the line. No, you're not an axe murderer. You're a pretty good person. All of those things compared to other human beings. But God doesn't compare you to other human beings. He compares you to his perfect law. And when that happens, you have fallen short. And because of that, wrath is being stored up. And God is so loving and gracious toward you. He's not unleashing the dam right now. He, 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 he's holding it back. So I can stand here and other people can be in your life and say not only is God holding back, God is also giving. He's freely offering you salvation, full and free. If you'll repent and believe, if you will trust in what God has done, what His provision, which is Christ alone on the cross, and anything you do, but Christ, if you rest in Christ, you trust in Christ, you turn from who you are and what you are and to Him, then that dam will not be unleashed on you because He already unleashed it on Christ on the cross. But there's where your sin was paid for as a believer. But if you receive not that love, in love, I have to warn you, one day that, that dam will be unleashed. And it will be unleashed for all eternity. In Christ, Jesus paid it all. Amen? Outside of Christ, you will pay. You want the first. And God wants you to have the first. Because He loved you so much that He sent His Son. That you might have eternal life. Gracious Lord, we do praise you for how kind and merciful you are. Thank you for your truth. It's clear, but as clear as it is, unless you ignite it, unless you help us understand, unless your spirit does his work, um, they're just words. I pray you would do your work today and that you would help us, above all these other things, to put on love which holds everything else together. In Jesus' name, amen.